Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, our wondrous and glorious King, we enter your temple today with shouts of joy and songs of praise. You have redeemed us through your Messiah, your incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have brought us out of slavery to sin and death with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You have set us free to serve, for there is life and gladness in your name. You provide for us never-ending rivers of mercy flow out from you. You are robed in splendid and majestic light, brighter than a thousand suns. You are a holy terror, always good, but never safe. May we tremble before You. May we fear You. May we honor You. May we set our hopes on You. May we find our happiness in You. May we flee to You to find refuge. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel in whose name there is deliverance. Blessed be our God. For He is our rock, our Redeemer, and our salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that You would put the blessing of Your Holy Spirit upon the reading and preaching of Your Word. That it might be sealed to our hearts. That we might know Your love for us through Christ Jesus. That we might be assured of the forgiveness of sins. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. In the Gospel of John, there are three days where Jesus appears to His followers. And each one of those days, He deals with one disciple in particular. On Easter Sunday, He dealt with Mary Magdalene in her despair. The next Sunday, the next week, he dealt with Thomas in his doubts. This final appearance of Jesus in John's Gospel is to take care of unfinished business that Jesus has with Peter. Peter obviously thinks he has blown it now. He has disqualified himself from being a disciple or an apostle of Jesus after his threefold denial of Jesus the night that Jesus was arrested and betrayed because Peter had denied Jesus three times. Peter figured, that's it. Uh, He's done with me. I'm disqualified. And so Peter does the only thing he knows to do, and that is he goes back to his old way of life, his old way of making a living. He goes back to fishing. Now, this is an an incredibly profound and deep and pastorally rich passage. I think perhaps the best way to get at the meaning of John 21 for us is to compare it to two other passages. We didn't read these other passages this morning, but I think I can talk you through them, explain what's going on in them, and you'll see how they connect with John chapter 21. The first passage we want to compare John 21-2, is Luke chapter 5. This is very early in the ministry of Jesus when Jesus calls His first disciples. Uh, Here in John 21, we are on the beach by the Sea of Galilee. This is exactly where Peter is in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus calls him to be His disciples about three years earlier. Same location, uh, same environment. Same kind of thing going on. In Luke chapter 5, Peter had been out fishing all night, but unsuccessfully. This professional fisherman had come up empty-handed. 
Peter in Luke 5 was still in his boat when Jesus said to him to go out into the deep and to let his nets down there. And when Peter did so, they caught so many fish, the net was breaking. When they came ashore, Peter fell down at Jesus' knees in shame, in humility. He said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus said back to Peter, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And from that moment forward, Peter became a follower of Jesus, an apostle. Now, three years later, the same thing happens again. The same kind of events play themselves out all over. Peter has been out fishing all night, but again, this professional fisherman is without a catch. Jesus calls out to him from the shore. It's the same as before. He tells these professional fishermen how to do their fishing. He gives them fishing instructions. They follow those instructions, casting their net now on the right side of the boat, and they get a huge catch a fish just like in Luke chapter 5. Peter comes to the shore. He drags the fish to Jesus. Jesus invites him to a picnic on the beach. And after eating with Jesus, Jesus asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Each time Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then each time Jesus renews his commission, commanding Peter, feed my sheep. And then Jesus says, follow me. See, all these parallels between Jesus' first call to Peter in Luke 5 and the renewal of his call here in John 21, these parallels are obvious. In each case, there was a failed fishing trip at night. In each case, Jesus, who seems to be an unidentified stranger on the beach, calls out to these fishermen and tells them what to do. In each case, it resulted in a huge haul of fish. In each case, Peter then meets Jesus on the beach, feeling totally unworthy, feeling wretched and ashamed of himself, overwhelmed with his sin and his shame. And in the first case, Jesus calls and commissions Peter as an apostle. In the second case, Jesus graciously recalls and restores and recommissions Peter as an apostle. Peter needs to be restored in John 21 because he has fallen away. He had betrayed Jesus. That night when Jesus was arrested and taken away to be tried by the high priest and before Pilate, Peter denied Jesus three times. He had forsaken his master, he had forsaken Jesus. In John 13, on that very night, earlier in the evening, Peter had boasted, Lord, I will follow you anywhere. I will even lay down my life for you. But of course, Jesus knew that Peter was full of himself. Not full of faith, but just full of himself. He was prideful and overconfident. And so Jesus knew what was coming that night. Jesus said to Peter, before the rooster crowed, you will deny me three times. Later that night when the rooster crowed, Peter realized what he had done. I want you to think about how Peter must have been feeling in the days after his denial. How do you think Peter felt? Especially after he has to meet Jesus all over again as the risen Jesus appears to him with the other disciples. How do you think Peter felt? How ashamed 
do you think he felt? How often do you think Peter wished that he could just go back and redo those moments? To do that night all over again without the denial. See, in John 21, Jesus is going to give Peter something better than a redo. In fact, had Peter gotten to do it all over again, he would have blown it all over again because he was weak and flawed. Instead of a redo, Jesus gives Peter an undo. He gives Peter forgiveness. And that's what Peter really needed. You know, how often do we waste time wishing we could redo this or that part of our lives? That we could just rewind the tape and then redo it. And and we think to ourselves, oh, I would act differently. I would say something differently. I would think differently if I could just do it all over again. The truth is, no, you wouldn't. That's just imaginary. That's not reality. Reality is not redoing the past. Reality is Jesus offering you forgiveness for your past. See, what Peter needed is really what we need. What Jesus gives to Peter is what Jesus offers to give us. I think we can all relate to Peter here. Have you ever thought, you know, now I've really done it. I've crossed over that line. I've, I've made too big of a mess to go for. Too big of a, of a mess out of this situation or that situation. Or maybe just out of your whole life. You feel like you've made a mess of it. Have you ever thought, now I've wrecked it. Just like you can total a car, I've totaled my life. It's wrecked beyond all repair. Have you ever found yourself feeling worthless? You just don't measure up, and so you feel worthless. Or you feel unclean. Or you feel ashamed. Have you ever found yourself feeling like a complete failure? You know, the truth is, all of us feel shame and guilt. And that's because we have much to be ashamed of, much we've done that really does bring guilt. When we are ashamed and guilty, what's our default? Our default's just like Peter. We want to run away from Jesus. We want to get as far away from Jesus as we can because we feel unworthy. We feel unworthy to be in Jesus' presence. What this story shows you is that when you feel ashamed and guilty, don't run from Jesus. Run to Jesus or even swim to Jesus as Peter does here. No matter what you've done in your life, you couldn't have wrecked it more than Peter did. You couldn't wreck a situation worse than Peter did that night. You couldn't wreck your life more than Peter did that night. He threw his... His apostolic career, he threw his reputation, he threw everything away that night. He denied you. I can assure you, you have never felt more worthless or shame than Peter. In fact, you've got something over Peter. I would say it's quite likely that nobody's going to take the three worst things you've ever done in your life. No one's ever going to take your three worst deeds and write them down in a book that will be read by billions of people down to the end of history. Okay? 
So however ashamed you've been, or however ashamed you are, even right this moment, your shame can't be greater than Peter. Peter was ashamed of himself. But what Jesus does for Peter is exactly what He does for you. Jesus forgave Peter. He restored Peter. What does Jesus do for you? He forgives you. He restores you. That's the good news the risen Christ brings to you. Forgiveness and restoration. The truth is, every time you fall, Jesus is right there to pick you up and put you back on your feet again. Every time you fall down in the dirt and mud, Jesus is right there to pick you up and, and, and clean you off and make you new again. In fact, you know what, what's interesting is that night when, when Peter betrayed Jesus three times, that wasn't the last time Peter would really mess things up. It's interesting, in the book of Acts, Peter's told to go to Cornelius, but he needs a threefold vision before he'll go into the home of this Gentile and preach the gospel. You know, Peter had a threefold denial, he gets a threefold restoration. Later, he gets a threefold vision. That's what it took to nudge Peter out of his Jewish cocoon and out into the Gentile world. You could say again, he was, he was struggling failing as an apostle. And that vision finally pushed him to do what needed to be done. In the book of Galatians, Paul has to confront Peter to his face because Peter, in his cowardice, withdrew from table fellowship with Gentile Christians and decided, no, I'm only going to have fellowship with Jewish Christians. And Paul says, you are denying the Gospel by how you live. You're not walking in line with the Gospel. Peter, again, had messed things up. Peter had this track record of messing things up again and again and again. But every time he messed things up, he was restored. Every time he fell, every time he gets restored. And so it is with us. You can't out God's grace. In fact, your sin is no match for God's grace. Your sin is no match for God's mercy. No matter how deep the stain, Christ's blood is a strong enough detergent to wash it out. No matter how deep that stain of sin and guilt and shame on your life, Christ's blood washes you clean. If that blood could wash away the stain of Peter's sins, it can wash out the stain of your sins too. Every stop, every spot, every stain, gone. The blood of Jesus scrubs you clean. The risen Christ comes to Peter and restores him so Peter will see, oh, this is what Jesus' death was all about. He died for your denials. He died for every wrong thing you've ever done. He shed that blood to cleanse away that dirt, that filth that mars and stains our lives. So Peter, yeah, Peter was pretty much worthless after his denial. Yeah, you feel worthless yourself. You feel unworthy. Jesus comes to you and says, good. 
You're right where I want you. You're just the kind of person I like to be with. To forgive and then to use for my purposes. You say, Lord, I'm broken. Jesus says, great. I died in order to fix you. The reality is if you don't have times in your life where you feel unworthy or worthless, <laughs> then come talk to me after the service because you're probably a sociopath with no conscience. Right? That's another issue. But I think this story in John 21 shows us the only kind of person Jesus forgives is the person who knows He needs it. The only kind of person who can be deemed worthy to serve in Christ's kingdom is the kind of person who knows his unworthiness. Peter knew he needed forgiveness in Luke chapter 5. He knew he needed it again in John chapter 21. And he got it. And he knew he got it because of what Jesus does with him on that beach. Jesus spreads out a picnic. Jesus shares a meal with him. Jesus is saying to Peter, I know you're a sinner and a betrayer and a denier, but guess what? I love to eat and drink with sinners. You know, if, if you are estranged from someone, you're alienated from somebody, you're, you're, you, a relationship you know, has fallen apart and you're at odds with somebody else, and that person asks you to go out for a meal, you're probably not going to want to do it. We really don't want to eat with those people we're estranged from. That's why holiday meals can be so difficult because in a lot of cases, when you get together with family members, you're getting together with people you feel alienated from and you have to sit at the table and eat with these people and pretend like you like each other. That's why holidays can be so difficult for so many people. You go to, 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 to a meal with somebody that you're estranged from, it can be really stressful, and that stress causes indigestion. It can be a really hard thing to do. But when Jesus shares this meal of bread and fish with Peter, He's not just pretending. He's not play-acting at reconciliation. This meal is so Peter will know that he is loved and forgiven and accepted and every Lord's Day, when Jesus spreads that meal of bread and wine for us, it serves the same purpose. And so you'll know, whatever kind of week you've had, whatever you've done, however you've wrecked it this week, however you've messed it up this time, Jesus says, look, I love you. I accept you. I'm going to serve you at my table. I'm going to have a meal with you to show. We're at peace. We're reconciled. That's half of this. That's the half of it. That's Luke 5 connected with John 21. We see the transformation in Peter's life. But there's another passage that I think is also really important that we need to compare to this one. And it's actually within John's Gospel. It's John chapter 18. We've already made reference to it, but we need to look at it in more detail to see how closely it parallels John 21. So you got John 18 and John 21. See, when Peter shows up here in John 21 on the beach, he finds Jesus standing around a fire of coal. That's how it's described in verse 9. It's a charcoal fire. A very specific description is given of the fire. But this is not the first time in John's Gospel we have a charcoal fire. Back in John 18, after Jesus was arrested and then carried away to the precincts of the high priest, 
Peter, thanks to John, John was able to gain access for himself and for Peter. They were able to get into the high priest's quarters as well. And so they were able to watch from a distance what was happening to Jesus as he was put on trial before the high priest. And as Peter made his way into the precincts of the high priest, he went and warmed himself, John 18 tells us, at a charcoal fire. That same unique description is used for the fire. And the fact that they're both called charcoal fires in John 18 and in John 21 then invites us to look for other connections, other relationships between the two scenes. And certainly we find many connections. Mostly by way of contrast. In John 18, the fire is built by the enemies of Christ. In John 21, it's built by Jesus Himself. In John 18, Jesus is on trial and he'll lose his life. In John 21, Jesus has returned to life in the resurrection. In John 18, Peter is present at the fire because of John. John is the one who gets him access to the precincts of the high priest. In John 21, Peter is present at the fire because John recognized Jesus on the beach and said, It is the Lord. In John 18, Peter denies Jesus three times around the fire. In John 21, Peter is restored three times by Jesus while standing around the fire. A threefold denial is matched by a threefold restoration. In John 18, Peter receives warmth around the fire. In John 21, Peter receives food and forgiveness around the fire. In John 18, Peter is hardened in his sin as he denies Jesus and indeed denies that he is Jesus' disciple. In John 21, Peter is softened as he is reclaimed as a disciple and apostle. In John 18, Jesus is asked by Roman soldiers, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he responds by giving them the divine name, I am. But when Peter is standing around that fire and is asked by a slave girl, are you one of Jesus' disciples? Peter's answer is a denial of the divine name, I am not. Now in John 21, Peter who said, I am not a disciple, meets the great I am, who says, oh yes, you are one of my disciples. And he transforms and recommissions and reclaims Peter as his own. Just as the prophet Isaiah was commissioned in Isaiah 6. We read this as our call to worship this morning. The Lord there took, it's actually the seraphim, takes a coal from the altar fire. Note, it's a coal. A coal is taken from the altar fire and touches it to Isaiah's lips. So that this man who is crying out, I am unclean and I am of an unclean people, is now cleansed and sent. So Peter, as he is standing around a coal fire is going to be cleansed and commissioned. He's going to be forgiven and he's going to be sent. It's just like Isaiah 6 all over again and it's the reversal of John 18. Now Peter must have been expecting or at least hoping that Jesus would do something like this, that Jesus would restore him as an apostle because know how it's described here. As soon as he realizes it's Jesus on the beach, what does he do? He puts on not a life jacket, but he puts on his outer garments. And then he throws himself overboard. He jumps in the water. Now, normally we wouldn't put on an extra garment right before we go swimming. What is Peter doing? 
Well, see, I think Peter has something in mind. When priests in the Old Covenant were ordained to office, they were robed with outer garments. An outer garment was put on over them. It was a kind of investiture, uh, that ordination ceremony. I think Peter here is putting on his outer garment because he wants to be reincorporated into the company of apostles. And when he gets to the shore, he has to be thrilled to find that's exactly what Jesus is going to do for him. At the shore, Jesus, again, he shows that he is at peace with Peter by sharing a meal with him. And around the fire, really, you could say Jesus asks him three ordination questions and and gives him an ordination commission. And and Peter takes three ordination vows. Again, these three questions and vows reversing his three denials. But it's very interesting to look at how Jesus phrases those questions and how Peter responds each time. The English translation doesn't quite capture it. The first two times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? The word he uses for love is the Greek word agape. It's a word that really describes the highest form of love, a kind of sacrificial, self-giving love. The kind of love Peter thought he had for Jesus, the kind of love he bragged about back in John chapter 13 on that very night where he would go on to betray Jesus. Back then when Peter was brash, he bragged about how faithful he'd be, how he would lay down his life for Jesus. See, that would have been agape love. But he failed. He he, he talks the talk, but he didn't walk the walk. And so now Peter has been humbled And so when Jesus says, do you agape me more than all these? Peter knows he doesn't love Jesus more than any of the other disciples. And so when he responds, he uses a different word for love. He says, you know, Lord, that I phileo you. Uh, It's a word, you know, agape is up here, phileo is maybe here. It describes warm, brotherly affection, a kind of brotherly love. Peter's not going to again claim that he can sacrifice everything for Jesus because he already made that claim and then failed to make good on it when the time came. Now in his humility, all he will claim to have is a warm, brotherly affection for Jesus. But you know what? It turns out that's enough. Jesus accepts even his imperfect love Because Jesus loves him perfectly. See, we don't have to love Jesus perfectly. We can't and we won't. But that's okay because Jesus does love us perfectly. We're all looking for that perfect love. That ultimate agape love. Often the best we can do is phileo. But Jesus here accepts that. He accepts Peter's imperfect love. His weak love. His flawed love. Because Jesus has a perfect agape love for Peter. A perfectly sacrificial love. See, what's going on here? What what is Jesus really doing? The two fires in John 18 and John 21, these two charcoal fires, they really represent two different communities, two different families, two different ways, two different ways of living, you could say. The first fire represents the old creation community. And the old way of life. And the old Peter. The braggart. The boastful one. 
It's the world in rebellion against Jesus. That's the community gathered around that fire in the high priest's precinct. The second fire points to a new creation community. This new family Jesus is forming. A family based on love. A family based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, that you have fire here, I think, points us ahead to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit will be poured out in flames of fire on Peter and the other disciples. This is pointing to a community formed by the fire of God's Spirit. Poured out at Pentecost. In fact, there are a lot of other key details here that fit with Pentecost and point to Pentecost. John's Gospel has several links with Pentecost. Indeed, several previews of Pentecost. So, for example, in John's Gospel, when Jesus dies on the cross, how is it described? John chapter 19, verse 30, it says, Jesus bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Now, John is the master of the double entendre, giving words and concepts a double meaning. Certainly, when He gives up His spirit, the spirit He gives up is a way of describing His physical death. There's no doubt about that. But it's got to be a double entendre. He gives up His breath. What is His breath or His Spirit? It's the Holy Spirit. In other words, He died in order to give us the Holy Spirit. To give up the Holy Spirit from Himself to us. And we see this actually in John 20 passage we recently looked at. After the resurrection, He meets with the disciples in the upper room and He breathes on them. He breathes out what? His Spirit. He breathes out His Holy Spirit. When He breathes on them, He says, receive the Holy Spirit. His breath is the Pentecostal Spirit. We have all these connections with Pentecost, but perhaps the most interesting Pentecostal connection has to do with this great haul of fish uh, that we have here in John chapter 21. Remember, Jesus called His disciples by telling them He would make them Fishers of men. And so, all throughout the Gospels, fishing for fish is symbolic of fishing for men with the net of the Gospel. Fishing for fish symbolizes fishing for men through the preaching of the Gospel. Casting out the net of the Gospel. But then we have this curious detail. We're told that there were 153 fish brought to shore in this catch. Now, why are we given the number? And since we are given the number, we have to ask, what does it mean? And here you have to bear with me, and you have to bear with me because you are modern people, which means you are out of touch with an ancient book like the Scriptures. I think sometimes we domesticate and tame the Bible. We sort of take all the weirdness out of it, but we ought not to do that. Modern people have a problem with the Bible, and the problem is this. We think that things are either literal or symbolic. They either are what they are, or they're not really that. They mean something else. That's a false dichotomy. Certainly ancient people, biblical people, the people who wrote the Scriptures didn't think that way. And I think they were better because of it in certain respects. In the Scriptures, something can be both literal and symbolic. It can have literally happened and yet carry symbolic freight. God can use literal 
things in a symbolic way. The great theologian Thomas Aquinas put it well. He said, God writes with things the way men write with words. Think about how we use words. We we use words as signs, as symbols to convey meaning. What we do with words, God does with things, with people, places, and events in history. History really is His story. History is God's story, and He's writing it with symbolic meaning, symbolic signifiers. So God can take actual historical events and they can carry symbolic meanings that reveal to us God's purposes. Now it's true, sometimes the church fathers and the medieval theologians were guilty of taking this too far. You could say of over-reading the Scriptures, finding more there than is really legitimate. And, and we look at that history of interpretation and we wonder, where are the brakes on these things? How are you going to stop this car? It seems like it's just out of control. But as moderns, we tend to have overreacted against that and we tend to underread the Scriptures. We're all break, no accelerate. And so we end up missing the beauty and missing the rich truth that's actually there in the Scriptures. Look, if a detail like this is included in the Scriptures, you can be assured that it is there for a reason. It's not just because, as one person put it, fishermen like to count their their fish. It's got to be more than that. You know, John tells us at the end of this, he says, you know, even if all the books in the world, you know, you, you could fill all the books in the world and then some with the deeds of Jesus. Okay, if Jesus did so many great things that not all the books in the world even could contain it, you know, even the World Wide Web couldn't contain all the deeds of Jesus, then the things we are told are pretty special. And they must have some kind of extra dimension of meaning we don't want to miss. So yes, there were actually 153 fish. But the number 153 is given to us in the text because it has symbolic meaning. It's actually a pretty special number. Now to get at this symbolic meaning, we have to know something else. Namely, we have to know something about the ancient practice of gematria. See, in most ancient cultures, letters also served as numbers. Letters did double duty. They were letters for writing, but they also served as numbers for doing math. In our culture, we use Roman letters and Arabic numerals, so we don't have this. But in ancient Latin, Greek, Hebrew, letters and numbers were the same. We all know this thanks to the Super Bowl. Because when they put out the Super Bowl, you know, whatever Super Bowl is going to be this year, they use Roman numerals. But of course, those Roman numerals are just letters. X, C, L, I, V, that those letters carry numerical value. And so what this means is every word in an ancient language also had a numerical value. Encoding numbers in names was a common practice in the ancient world. Let me just give you a few examples of this. The book of Proverbs has 375 proverbs that are ascribed to Solomon. If you take the Hebrew letters of Solomon's name and add up their numerical value, you get 375. Not a coincidence. It's there by divine design. Not only that, but later in the book of Proverbs, there's a smaller collection of Proverbs that Hezekiah collected. 140 Proverbs collected by Hezekiah. 
the numerical value of Hezekiah's name is 140. Okay? Again, not an accident. It's there by divine design. This happened outside of the Scriptures too. We've uncovered an ancient piece of graffiti in Pompeii uh, that has... Uh, that, that has um, this has been found. And the graffiti says, I love her whose number is 545. Okay, 545. That wasn't an address or a telephone number. Uh, what that had is then all the girls adding up the numbers of the letters in their name to see, am I 545? Am I the one? Okay, that's how it works. Uh, in Pergamum, another ancient Greek city, there are uh, stones there with all kinds of riddles inscribed on them, but they're numerical riddles. They use numbers in this kind of way. So this was a well-known practice in the ancient world. And it's very likely that 153 is intended to work this way. Now, how is the question? Well, consider this possibility. We read from Ezekiel chapter 47 this morning. Uh, that part of Ezekiel's vision is about the coming new covenant, and it describes the new covenant as a time of great evangelistic success and growth for the kingdom of God, how rivers of living water will flow out from the temple, and first they'll be ankle deep, and then knee deep, and then waist deep, and this river of of, of life will be teeming with fish, and fishermen will go stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Engleam, and they will fish with great success. Now, this is what's interesting. The numerical value of the word Gedi in just means spring. So it's the spring of Gedi and the spring of Glam. The numerical value of Gedi is 17. The numerical value of Gileam is 153. 153 and 17 are actually. Connected. 153 is the 17th triangular number. Or to put it this way, to put it another way, if you triangulate 17, you get 153. Okay? For those of you who need help with this, like me, you know, you don't remember this from math class. What that means is if you take 17 plus 16 plus 15 plus 14 all the way down to 1 and add them up, the sum total of 17 down to 1 is 153. So 17 and 153 are related numbers. And again, this is something we don't pay any attention to, but it's something that ancient people were very interested in, the special properties of numbers and their symbolism. So reread Ezekiel, reread his prophecy with this in mind. This is a passage about a river that turns into a vast ocean. And it's a passage about fishing, it's a passage about bringing in the Gentile nations. And Ezekiel says, fishermen will stand at 17 and at 153 and catch fish. Fishermen will stand all the way from spring number 17 to spring number 153 and haul in fish. Ezekiel describes the mission of the church to the Gentiles under the symbol of fishing. And he uses these numbers 17 and 153. Now, when Peter holds in 153 fish in John 21, in a passage that is all about him being restored as a fisher of men who will preach the gospel to the nations, what do we get? Something like this. It's, 
It's this text's way of communicating to us through Peter, God's promises and prophecies through Ezekiel will be fulfilled. God's promises to flood the nations with His grace and and for there to be a great haul of fish from all the nations, that's going to be fulfilled in Peter and the other apostles. In fact, it gets even more interesting. At Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter is the one who stands up and preaches after the Holy Spirit has been poured out. But it's interesting, at the beginning of Acts 2, we are told that men from all these different nations have come and gathered in Jerusalem for the feast. And so these are the nations, these are the people groups that are represented when the Spirit is poured out and when Peter begins to preach the Gospel. And it's people from these nations that are converted. Test me on this. Go look at Acts chapter 2 and add up the nations that are there in that list. you know how many nations are there? 17. 17. And if you triangulate 17, what do you get? 153. And on that day in Acts chapter 2, you could say Peter caught 3,000 fish in the net of the Gospel. The prophecy of Ezekiel began to come to pass. See, what does this catch of fish in John 21 point to? It points us ahead to the global mission The worldwide mission that Jesus is giving to His apostles and indeed to the whole church. In His church, He is forming one new family, one new humanity composed of people from every nation, tribe, race, and tongue. I don't know if this is right, but the ancient uh, the, the, the church father Jerome said that at that time there were 153 different species of fish that had been identified in the Sea of Tiberias. Another interesting connection. Shows you what's going on here. You know, the Christian faith, even though it's thought to be white man's religion in our day, a religion for Western Europeans and Americans, it's just not the case at all. From the very beginning, Jesus presented Himself as a Savior for all nations. The Christian faith is the one true global religion. The church is the true global village. The church is the true United Nations of which the UN in New York City can at best be a dim parody. In fact, it's interesting. You have so many other details in this passage that point us this way. The very fact that it's called the Sea of Tiberias. John here uses the Roman Gentile name for the sea, not the Jewish name. When Peter is going to go meet Jesus, what does he do? He jumps in the water. He throws himself overboard. Who does that remind you of? The prophet Jonah. Where was the prophet Jonah sent? He was sent to Gentiles. One of the few prophets actually sent on a mission to preach the Gospel to Gentiles, to the Assyrians in the city of Nineveh. And when when Peter meets Jesus on the beach, how how does Jesus identify Peter with his surname? Peter, son of Jonah. In other words, Peter, will you be like Jonah and go to the Gentiles? Jonah was reluctant to go to the Gentiles, but he went. Will you willingly go to the Gentiles and take this good news that Christ is risen and that Christ forgives sins? This final chapter in John's Gospel is not just tacked on. It is a fitting epilogue to the whole 
book. Yes, it's about Peter's redemption. But it's also about the church's mission. And I really think those two themes here are deeply intertwined. The same risen Lord who embraced Peter with grace and forgiveness now stretches out His arms to embrace the whole world in grace and forgiveness. The same fire of cleansing and of the Spirit that was at work when Peter met with Jesus on that beach and was served a meal by Jesus. That same fire of cleansing and of the Holy Spirit is available to us and indeed to all nations. The same love that restored Peter after he had fallen picks us up when we fall and indeed that same love is offered to all nations. The same net that hauled 153 fish to shore the, the net of God's kingdom. That net has hauled us into God's kingdom and that net is now hauling all nations into God's kingdom. And note, the net does not break. There is one church, one people, one new humanity. The unbroken net points to a united church. All different kinds of fish caught in the one net of the Gospel. The same Jesus who had a heart for Peter has a heart for Peter's everywhere. The same heart Jesus showed towards Peter, He shows towards you and me. And indeed, He shows towards all the nations. John 21 shows us what the risen Christ does. How He welcomes sinners and serves sinners and feeds sinners and eats with sinners and forgives sinners and renews sinners and uses sinners and sends sinners out to do His mission in all the world. Let's pray together. God, we do pray that You would help us, that You would help us to trust and to love. We pray that You would help us to recognize our sin and our shame and our brokenness so we can bring that sin, shame, and brokenness to Jesus and be restored and renewed and cleansed and healed and help us to play our role faithfully bringing Your Gospel to all nations that rivers of living water might flow out and flood the whole world. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.